Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Stoller with uh, Kate Payne Brown. It's uh, March 5th, 2020. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kate. Pleasure. Uh, first question, most important question, mm-hmm. why wine? Um, you know, I came into the wine industry, like most people do, um, kind of in a circuitous way. Um, I had an undergrad degree in biology and chemistry from University of Oregon. and. Um, I think at that point, in the early 2000s, the metric, um, well, I graduated in 2000, the metric was if you excelled in science, you either had, you had a limited um, direction, like choice, in terms of where you were going with your degrees. And so one of them was medicine, and the other one was research. And so um, kind of fell somewhere in between, and I uh, graduated and decided that I was going to be an optometrist. And it was great. I worked in the optometry field for four years um, in Beaverton for a great clinic, and that I still um, go to because um, I trust them. <laughs> and I, I decided that um, in doing that, and it wasn't so much that. It, you know, I don't know if this is what my calling was. I'm still young and idealistic. And I was like, I don't know if I want to do this. And so I was applying to optometry schools. And I was volunteering for um, Hip Chicks Do Wine in an urban winery in Portland, Oregon. And um, I kind of just, it was right down the street. We lived in Woodstock. And so I just started showing up and doing this. Like, this is really neat. And so. From there, um, I got this. I started doing some research into going to school. It's like, you know, people make a career out of this, and it was this eye-opening experience. And my parents were both from New York City, and we moved to Salt Lake City in the early '80s. And um, like wine, I often get like, do you come from a wine family? And I, we don't. Like my parents drank wine, but they weren't like, collectors or anything like that. Um, and so. When I got into this field, I was like, oh, it kind of married the idea of a science uh, aptitude with something that was intuitive. And um, I mean, I think the term art gets thrown around like this, this idea of like having this artistic part and this, you know, science part and the marrying of the two. And I, and I think there's some truth to that. Um, I don't think it's as romantic as that, but there is some truth to that. And um, so I did my research and I decided that um, I didn't want to go to school in California. I wanted to um, go on an adventure and I applied to, and to a master's program at the University of Adelaide in um, South Australia. And I got in. And so I think probably much to my parents' chagrin, they, they didn't really understand what I was doing at that point. Um, was, they were you're not going to go to optometry school, you're not going to be the doctor that we wanted. Um, And it took some time for them to really understand. Um, But at that point, um, you know, in my early to mid-20s, I was like, 
moving to Australia. <laughs> We're going. And so um, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, um, he was just like, great, sign me up. I'm for it. Let's do this. And so we got engaged and married within six months of me getting accepted to school. And he came with me um, and ended up, while I was doing my master's, he, who was not really interested at that point in the industry, fell into a job working for Petaluma, um, which is great, working with Brian Kozer and um, working with some of you know the pioneers of the Australian wine industry while I was getting like a formal degree, he was getting an informal degree, so to speak. And so that was really the beginning of it. We lived there for two years and then we came back um, just to do one harvest. And so that's the long and the short of it. Like I think when I was there, um, to, to kind of drive back my parents, I remember talking to my mother at the time saying that, oh, I've got to get up early, I've got to pick um, my grapes for uh, my research project. She's like, pick your grapes? That sounds a lot like farming. And so I was like, it's exactly like farming. <laughs> that, this is what it is. It's not just, you know, I think they had some idea that, um, you know, just be drinking wine all the time or analyzing. I think there's often this confusion between like um, sommeliers and like, going to school to be a winemaker mm-hmm. um, and yeah I've often uh, I get the question like I'm in a grocery store what wine should I buy it's like that's not really what I do um, you should talk to a nice wine steward that's in front of you <laughs> um, but yeah I think that was like the initial idea of what their idea of what I was doing mm-hmm. but um, yeah I was rooted in so much science and so much research and it was just a phenomenal time so that's how I almost tripped, I tripped into being a winemaker, so to speak. And I feel like everybody has this route, this way that we get to that, which is pretty cool, which makes our industry so dynamic. Tell me about the, the formal education. You had you had that point had some experience with, with hip chicks, but clearly were kind of thrown in. So tell me about that experience. And it, did, were you hooked immediately? Did it take a little while? Um, you know, it was pretty, capricious decision to go from like working really occasionally not even really doing a lot of wine work into deciding I'm going to do a master's in winemaking it was probably one of the most capricious decisions that I've ever made in my life Um, but it worked out Um, yeah it seemed I didn't have much experience at all at that point Um, I knew I wanted to stay in the sciences and how it actually, I mean, in conjunction to that was um, my husband, well, boyfriend, we went on a Harley ride and um, with his dad and their friends and we met this gentleman and sorry, I cannot recall his name, um, but he said that he met this other gentleman who was a great consultant, that's how he described him, and this great consultant um, was from, um, got a degree from OSU and um, now travels the world and drinks wine and um, he said had a strong science background and OSU was looking for people with strong science backgrounds. And so that's, I mean that was really what piqued my interest. I was already kind of um, volunteering at Hip Chicks but really the catalyst to applying to school into in thinking about a career was this gentleman who kind of planted the seed 
for looking into a higher um, or more formal education in it. And um, and I never found out who the Stripe consultant was. I wish I knew. I mean, that would be glorious. Um, that would be a full circle moment right there. Mm -hmm. But I never, um, he didn't know his name. So I was like, okay, well, I like to travel. I like to drink wine. I've got a strong science background. This could be, this could be the, the ideal job for me. And it was really as simple as that. Um, I started looking at schools immediately. And um, I think the reason I didn't, consider at that point OSU is because I went to U of O. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to not, not, it wasn't the rivalry between the schools, but I'd already had the adventure of moving and coming to Oregon um, to go to undergrad and I wanted to, you know, go to the next adventure. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I didn't necessarily want to, at that point, pay out of state California mm -hmm. um, tuition. So I started looking elsewhere. And um, I had a friend who was doing a master's in Adelaide in a different field. And she's like, this is a great program, you should look at it. And I did, and it was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal experience. I can't speak highly enough of it. What was, uh, what was your impression of Australia's wine industry at that point? Did you get, a, did you get kind of a, a, a glimpse at it? I did, we got a big glimpse at it. You know, um, at that point, and I, it's still, um, you know, it, there were so many wonderful pioneers of the Australian wine industry, and I was really fortunate to go to school with a lot of the children of those pioneers. And so, um, and I remember just being kind of starstruck, like, oh, we're drinking, um, you know, this particular bottle, and I'm sitting next to the sun, and um, having not grown up in a wine family, it, it was like, oh, gosh, this is so exciting. And, um, which was it was great, you know. There were only twenty people in the master's program, and I think maybe forty in the undergrad, maybe a little bit more. So it was pretty small. I don't know if those numbers are correct, but I know the master's one. But twenty, there were only twenty of us from all over the world. Um, but yeah, we it was great. They gave us a lot of opportunity to get out in the industry, and uh, we went on a lot of offsite um, kind of. Um, tours and talked about it and then we worked in the industry after mm -hmm. and so at that point it was still expanding although when this was in 2007 when I graduated they were kind of in the midst of um, no I graduated in 2006 gosh um, it all goes so fast um, we um yeah, they were um, they were in the midst of like this big fifty year drought, which was seemed like new to them. It's not as new now, unfortunately. Um, and everything at that point was contracting. Um, you know, wineries were kind of either coming together or closing, and it was an interesting time to be a winemaker there. Um, and I think there's been some resurgence, although now with you know wildfires and. Um, droughts and all of that it's it's challenge it's challenging everywhere mm -hmm. um, but it was such a remarkable place I think the original idea for us was that we were gonna um, go back to Australia so go back for we were only gonna come back for one harvest because we had um, we kept talking about you know Oregon Pinot you know oh you Australians especially South Australians 
you don't know how to make organ pinot, or, or you don't know how to make pinot noir, not organ pinot. Um, and so when we went to, like, we're like, well, we should come back and work one harvest and then go back to Australia and um, try to get our residency and stay here for any period mm -hmm. of time. Mm -hmm. And so um, after I graduated, I worked for, I'm jumping around, but I worked for Tintar after I graduated, um, and which was at that point a 5,000 ton winery um, in McLarenville. And um, it was pretty remarkable. Actually, um, we had two, uh, I think harvest was like over four months, four to five, four to five months, must have been, because we made, you'd start the beginning of January and you go through mid, like past Easter, um, mid-April, and you would do um, two weeks on day shift, have exactly 24 hours off, and then go two weeks on night shift. And that was insane. <laughs> it was insane. I think about that sometimes as I'm preparing for harvest because I feel like the hardest time, um, or at least the most stress and anticipation is right before we start harvesting. And once you're in harvest, you're, just, you're doing it, mm -hmm. right? We mm -hmm. have, you know, you're in it. It's all that kind of prep and like, are we going to pick? Are we going to do this? And um, kind of for me now as a parent, getting like, my kids ready for us to be not present as much um, as another level of stress. But I would think about that time, I was like, gosh, you know, when we are really busy, it's only here, I mean, I'm really only gone, gone for like a few weeks, even though harvest is like eight to 10 weeks, mm -hmm. but the crux of it is only about like three weeks where it's madness, mm -hmm. um, controlled madness, but still madness. And then, yeah, I remember Australia, and at that point, I was an intern, so you you don't have like the thirty-five thousand foot view. You're just you know the worker bee, but it it's four and a half months mm. of, and so that perspective of being three weeks we can do this is great. Four weeks or uh, four months, four and a half months. That's a challenge. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a little crazy. That's that a little crazy. crazy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So thankful for that. For right now. <laughs> so the original plan was back for one harvest and then back to Australia, but I, I noticed you're still here. So, so, tell, still so, here, so tell me gosh, what happened. I know. Um, yes. So 2007, we came back. Um, so worked harvest in 2007 in Tintara, and then we came back. Um, my husband was at Petaluma. Um, he came back and went to Domain Serene as an intern, and I got a job at Archery Summit. Um, and which are great wineries. So right after harvest, and 2007 was, um, you know, an interesting harvest. Mm -hmm. It was really warm growing season, and then it got um, pretty rainy. And um, I just remember it being a pretty intense harvest. And after that harvest, you know, it was before the recession and things were still expanding. We both got offered great jobs. So I got offered um, right after harvest, like in pretty much after harvest, like the enologist position, and then quickly moved to assistant winemaker at Archery Summit. Um, and my husband got offered the cellar master position at Domain Stream. And when we, it was so serendipitous in that we both got offered these positions 
pretty close together and it made our decision pretty easy. Mm -hmm. You know, we, positions like that don't come up that um, readily. And so we made the decision to, well, we'll just see. We'll, we'll take these jobs. They don't get offered that often. And so let's do it. And so we did. And so, yeah, now fast, that was 2000, the end of, I mean, beginning of 2008 to end of 2007. So 12 years later. We're still here. Time does go quickly. Um, yeah, 12 years, house, kids. <laughs> yeah, just find a flash. Tell me about your time at Archery Summit. We talked a little bit before we started about some of the people you worked with there. Mm -hmm. so tell me about uh, who was there when you were there and who, mentors and, and, and yeah. sort of the, the job you were doing. So fortunate um, because I got the opportunity to work with Anna Matzinger and Lee Bartholomew. Anna um, was the head winemaker at the time, and Lee was the vineyard manager. They were both co-GMs, um, but to work with it. And then Corey Beyer, who um, is still there. Um, he is, he was a solid master at the time. Um, but to work with such an amazing team. It was there for six years, and we, um, over six years, we, it was just a wonderfully supportive atmosphere, um, certainly not without, um, I mean, challenging harvest or whatever, you know, but it was certainly an informative time for me mm -hmm. and really shaped my career as a winemaker and my perspective of making wine. And I am, I'm still incredibly close to Anna and Lee, and I count Anna as one of my mentors um, who's really helped me become the winemaker that I am today. Mm -hmm. So um, it was great, you know, and at that point to be on a all-women winemaking team, um, you know, 10 years ago was pretty remarkable. And I've been so fortunate in that I've uh, worked with amazing women-led um, um, companies mm -hmm. for the most part mm -hmm. and teams. So. Um, it's helped me become a better manager um, and think about things from a different perspective. But it was great, you know, um, working at Archery Summit, we only made Pinot Noir, or made a little bit of Pinot Gris, but for the most part, to be able to focus on different vineyards, um, five different um, vineyards, and um, make try to make different Pinot Noirs from those particular vineyards and kind of like the hands-off minimalist way. Mm -hmm. um, it's fantastic. Um, and I carry a lot of that experience with me today. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was, and I think, when I think back to those moments and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, we, there was a lot of discussion. We had the time, not always, but there was a lot of time to like discuss things and be inquisitive mm -hmm. and um, really contemplative about wines in general. And I try and think about that still when I'm considering blends, or um, and maybe that speaks to, <laughs> to why um, I got to this position as well in thinking about creating like reserve wines and the legacy wines here because of their, when you're provided the latitude to be thoughtful about things and to really do things with intention, mm -hmm. um, which I think we, we did do that at Archery. Um, and, we do the, do that here, but it's it's so different when you're provided the space to be thoughtful about things. Mm -hmm. um, really, is a certain there's a certain amount of freedom in that because it doesn't happen very often. 
And so to have that space is um, a gift, really. <laughs> Uh, you talked about your initial role as enologist, mm -hmm. quickly assistant winemaker. I'm curious, what, uh, what, 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 what are your tasks? What, what are you doing as assistant winemaker? And, and, and at what point, or what point do you feel your voice is valuable and able to be in the same room as people who are your mentors? That's a good question. Um, you know, there's a lot of. Um, I think when I was new to the industry um there's a there's a different sense of um what's the word i'm looking for uh i guess self-assurance really and confidence and so yeah you're kind of as enologist you're you're trying to think of wine through um, at least this was my perspective a textbook lens so does it fit through this? Maybe we should try this. And um, you're looking at it through defined parameters, mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. It's a great place to start. And then as you gain more exp experience and more perspective, you're able to color outside the lines. Um, and I don't know when that tr transition really changed. I think there was a great, um, I mean, working with those women in that team, um, there was a lot of bolstering of talent and um, there wasn't necessarily a closed room like scenarios where certain people weren't really allowed mm -hmm. per se. It mm -hmm. was like, okay, we're having these discussions. Mm -hmm. If you have like, if you have the ability to do so, please be a part of those discussions. And that was really great. I don't know that there was like this defined point where mm -hmm. it's like, but I think over time and being exposed to um, different tastings or different um, people or different ways of thinking about things, you start to figure out how your style, like what resonates with you mm -hmm. and how your style changes and mm -hmm. how, um, yeah, I think now as a winemaker, because I've had that time to, and certainly with school and a formal education to color within those lines and then now to be like, okay, well, it's going to be fine. Let's just try this. Um, and I think that's important. I think that's a great transition um, to have. And I don't know that I can pinpoint the exact moment. I wish I could. Like one day, like, aha, let's go outside. But there, it's a slow progression um, to think about your own um, your equity as like a person and a winemaker and how that um, kind of translates to the wines that you're going to make. What point did you like define yourself as a winemaker? What point did you tell people you were a winemaker? Oh gosh, I mean, I'm sure I told people I was assistant winemaker. I know, <laughs> just right. Like, I, I think in our society, when you um, move into any type of role, everybody or you any so type of social interaction, the first question is like, what do you do mm -hmm. for better or for worse mm -hmm. in in our country? Um, and so, yeah, you start to think about yourself. And I think in that way, and it's interesting in this profession, um, I think the identity, um, your identity and your wine personality or everything, there's, um, there's a blurring of that. So it becomes a lot of a lifestyle as well. Mm -hmm. You can't get away from it, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, you could try, but um, certainly it's more difficult to remove yourself living in like wine country and working 
all in one and it becomes part of who you are mm -hmm. for better or for worse mm -hmm. uh, definitely needs some work so every, in a good way but yeah it becomes part of your identity I don't know when I started um, considering myself a winemaker um, probably set it long before I, I would probably deem myself qualified to <laughs> but that's how it goes. <laughs> so uh, you spent six years at Archery Summit. Uh, how did you end up here? Um, well, so after I left Archery, um, I went and worked for a French consultant by the name of Kyriopoulos Kiniopoulos. And he owns a big um, laboratory. And we worked with him at Archery Summit, and I work with him now. And I still um, work for him now, in a way, I manage his um, his clients in like North America and help him. Mm -hmm. um, he would call me an ambassador. I would call me like his secretary. Um, but when we first met, he was thinking that he wanted to expand um, kind of the idea, like the paradigm of um, of like the way that the French handle like counsel or consultancy. Mm -hmm. um, and bring that over to the U.S. and um, and to have like somebody here all the time to manage that and expand. Um, but the the idea of like counseling for winemaking per se is so different there as opposed to here. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. Um, it just wasn't it wasn't directly translatable. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was. I was working with Kiriakos and. Um, Kiriakos has been a consultant here since I think 2008, maybe before that, um, maybe before that, 2005. Um, and he had said, or um, um, I had been working with him and Melissa um, said, oh, you know, we have somebody leaving, would you want to do some consulting um, beyond what you do for Kiriakos here? and um, help us through this like time. And I was like, sure, you know, that'd be great. And I was consulting for um, a few different wineries in the valley, um, just trying to see what my next move was, mm -hmm. um, which was great, but you also um, don't get a chance to know something so well when you're in so many different places. Mm -hmm. At least that's how I felt at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I came here on a consulting basis in 2014. Um, and then in 2015, we started expanding here. Um, and we didn't really have a complete idea of what the expansion would be at Stoller at that point. But they said, you know, do you want to stay on um, and really manage like, the reserve and like the smaller tier iron brands, which um, is something I. I excel at that's what that is um what i do um and so it's like yeah you know this seems like a great opportunity so that's really how i ended up here and then since then it's it's been phenomenal you know it's been um you know the transition from melissa going to vp of winemaking and then the transition of um, getting and building the new facility in ben Howe, doing um taking it over and managing that facility mm -hmm. and kind of having, you know, different rooms of winemaking, so to speak, different wineries under the same house, mm -hmm. um, and being able to focus on, like, 
the larger volume and the smaller volume mm -hmm. within the same company. Um, and having people to manage that has been remarkable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're focusing on the reserve, the, the small, you say smaller production, higher, higher. So tell me about fo focusing on something so narrow at a place like this. How, what, how do you define your role in, in that way? How do you work with other people who are doing similar things? I think it's become easier. Well, I think it's easier now that we have um, you know, a defined person for each building, and that really lends itself to helping that definition um, because we are constrained by space up here and capacity um, and, you know, how it kind of worked out was that we realized that we needed two separate teams within um, our production team, one that focuses on the reserves up at this facility and then another team that focuses um, at the estate winery. Mm -hmm. And so that helps the definition. And then we um, kind of flesh that out. So up here, I have an assistant winemaker and a cellar lead. And um, the three of us really, aside from some interns, we do about 14 to 18,000 cases in this facility, um, which is great. Everything that we do up here is um, estate grown. Um, and because of the other facility, we don't have to turn tanks, and we don't have to be rushed. It's that, again, bringing it back to intention and mm -hmm. bringing it back to this idea of um, let's give them the latitude to make the best possible wine within how we see it, like we have that space to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a winemaking team, we come together for um, blending or we have meetings where we discuss ideas. We do all of our body, bottling at the other facilities. So, um, I mean, we all lean on each other for different things. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been great. It's been really nice to um, have, you know, this space, but then also have a broader team to bounce ideas off of. Mm -hmm. um, and then with Shehalem being involved as well, um, that's, you know, the experience and the brain power of a pretty dynamic winemaking team, and we all um, really bring such a different perspective to winemaking, mm -hmm. um, which is pretty neat um, mm -hmm. to, you know, have your individual spaces and then come together and be like, have you tried this? Or what do you think of this? Or, um, and I find that really invaluable. Before you came on board here full time, you you had had a perspective of Stoller, I'm guessing, from outside and then from kind of consulting. I'm curious, what was it about here that made you want to be here uh, beyond beyond just the opportunity to, to to do your to do the reserves? Was there something else about Stoller that attracted you? You know, um, I had been friends with Melissa, um, and I really saw how she kind of paved the way for. Um, setting the tone for having a family and still doing this job. I think what's so interesting about being a woman in this industry is that, um, and I know that a lot of younger women feel like, how do you, how can you do both? And I remember being pregnant with my first child. I was like, I just don't think I'll be able to do this. Um, and give like the attention that you need to be present in this role and then also have a family. Um, and that was, um, when I came here, it was really at the beginning of the 2014 harvest. Um, I think my oldest son was, he must have been a year and a half around there. And um, and 
I mean, that was the appealing side of consulting. You kind of make your time within. Mm-hmm. And so Harvest was very different that year. Um, in a frenetic way, it was, it was just as busy. Um, but you were, um, I came here and it was like, oh gosh, you know, I saw how um, the team interacted and I saw how um, the, like, the beautiful property I had spent time here, but um, didn't really understand the nuances of like, the old vines or like the property or the really the history mm-hmm. that um, was so ingrained in here and I just I really liked it mm-hmm. I really felt that um, this company valued its employees and it's um, and I could still like I could envision myself having like being a mother mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. still doing my job mm-hmm. and being able to do it well under kind of the guidelines that were already set here mm-hmm. so that was incredibly attractive at that point and to also to bring back the idea of like focusing on um, you know one piece of land and making like the best one for that particular site mm-hmm. um, yeah it, it's funny you know in retrospect there's I mean there's a lot of wonderful women in our industry and um, we get together and you, there's the idea of like trying to manage it all um, is is still something that we still talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in between, you know, report cards or making sure my son gets the soccer stuff this morning before coming here. But I mean, it doesn't stop, so it's mm-hmm. what it is mm-hmm. in a good way. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, that's what really drew me to here was the fact that they focus on quality focused on you could still have a life like I really believe that was set, that tone was set from management early on and I, I really credit Melissa into like being steadfast and being like I want to do this but I also want to have this portion of my life too mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so not that we all don't work hard but I think that mm-hmm. I think that is a testament to that you can you can still do this. And I often tell, I often get a question from women who are um, in their mid-20s, like they're younger or even, you know, approaching when they want to have a family. It's like, how do you do it? I was like, you know, I don't, I can't, there's not like a prescribed way. Yeah, I'm just here to tell you that you can do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, go gray, but you can do it. You can, it's, it's feasible. You just need to create space for it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, in 2016, I had my second son um, right before harvest. And so it was a true test. I had been here a year, and I <laughs> found out I was pregnant. Um, and those things are never planned that well. Um, he was born in July. And in 2016, for the record, was the mm-hmm. hottest vintage on record, the earliest. And so we brought in sparkling, a fruit for sparkling. Um, program August 20th, I believe, which was the earliest that we've ever brought in fruit in the history of Stoller. And um, it was during our club weekend, our club event, which was interesting. Um, and my son was uh, just almost a month old. So, and then from there it just started, right? So um, it was such a funny vintage. I mean, fortunately, the yields were lower. So it didn't have to battle um, a deluge of fruit, but um, which was great because I had a <laughs> newborn to bring with me every, every day. Um, but I mean, that was supported here. I think it was, um, yeah, great. Um, 
do you want to do harvest? They, it was all. They're like, you could you could sit this harvest out, but the idea of not knowing the grapes from the beginning and seeing everything through wasn't appealing to me. It seems like you lose context, and so I, um, I wanted to go for it mm -hmm. to um, bring him to work. And, I mean, it was challenging, but it, it worked out. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, well adjusted, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he wants to be a winemaker, but we'll see. We'll see. Got time to change his mind. Yeah, he's, exactly. he's three and a half. He wants to be a unicorn, right? Well, so. Who, who doesn't? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> You, you talked a little bit earlier about this this industry in particular and how you kind of have that blend of like you're you're kind of always in wine you're always always mm -hmm. part of what you're doing I'm I'm curious as as there are more and more women like you coming into the industry who want to do have a family are you seeing those the standards change a little bit are you seeing more places that are more flexible like Stoller has been um, I'm hoping so mm -hmm. and we're advocating for it so um, I have a tasting group um, that really. Anna Metzinger and Cheryl Francis started, and it was, um, there's seven of us, and it's like Lynn Pinarash who's the first woman winemaker, and Louisa Ponzi, and um, Gina Hennen, and Gwyn, and Peterson Entry, and me, and so like, there's this thing that we started about five years ago, just kind of meeting and tasting through each other's cellars, and, um, and from there, it's kind of grown into this idea of like, wow, we have this forum for support that we feel like other women should have mm -hmm. and um, and, this, and right now we're in this moment this groundswell of um, forum and symposiums for women which is great um, but we wanted to focus more on the production side mm -hmm. because there is that idea like you the standards for women winemakers as opposed to men are a little bit different um, and so we're trying to advocate for that and provide um, the opportunities um, for women to, you know, have networking mm -hmm. and mentoring opportunities within our industry. Mm -hmm. We're just like in the beginning of that. Um, we started a group called Women in the Room um, because we often felt that um, there's always, you know, one woman on a panel or one woman in a tasting. So instead of like one woman in the like the only woman in the room, which we often joke that like one of the seven of us are probably like the only one, the token woman on the panel or something like that. And not to, I mean, I don't think it's intentionally like that. Oh, we need to put one woman on there. But it, you look around and you're like, wow, I am the only one on here <laughs> right now. And everybody kind of, all of us. I mean, there's take turns kind of mm -hmm. being that person. Mm -hmm. Um, for better or for worse, I mean, I'm glad somebody represents at some point, but um, the idea of starting like this broader forum was to change that and bring more women to decision-making mm -hmm. roles mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the production side mm -hmm. and to be invited to the table. And so, um, yeah, we're in, the, we're in the beginning of it, so I'm hoping that it changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it has. I mean, I see change even in 12 years that I've been in the Oregon wine industry. Um, I think there's certainly, I see it in just the applicants in terms of interns that apply. Uh, I think there's often more women applying than mm -hmm. men, mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just providing those opportunities. Talking about coming to a place like this uh, where you're focusing on only estate grapes and only mm -hmm. part of the winemaking, tell me about 
learning the property, learning your vineyard, learning your grapes, and, and trusting yourself to make those kinds of wines? Yeah, um, that's I think where experience comes in and perspective. Um, I think it would have been far more um, nervous or maybe less confident about it um, had I not had so many years at Archery Summit mm -hmm. where we were doing something similar but mm -hmm. different, mm -hmm. right? Because um, every state is different. But um, kind of embedding yourself in the land and the winery and kind of figuring it out is, um, has certainly helped me understand, you know, and made me more confident, like my decisions to pick or my decisions to leave wine on skins for longer or um, the decision to move to all native ferments or things like that. Um, and that just comes with time. I think the first year it was like, okay, I, you know, the blocks are set up in such an interesting way. You know, I often say it's like the Dewey Decimal System because we have like 11.1, 11.2, and then we have like 20.1. And it's like they're all broken up and they're, the difference is like, you know, either spacing or like, um, like difference in rootstocks mm -hmm. or clones. And so really kind of getting a map of the vineyard and knowing what's going to work well for the programs. I mean, the benefit for me coming in and um, working um, and having Melissa and the history that she's had here um, is like she kind of established some of like the sections that would be we would consider like Grand Cru sections. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So like having that history already was really glorious because it's like not starting from ground zero. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like okay we can we have this moment and and then things are changing that I'm evolving the the um, the vineyards evolving, you know, the idea of how you want to make wine, the climate certainly is evolving. It's all changing, so mm -hmm. not like holding on to like a specific dogma that being open to change and being open to being experimental is really important. Mm -hmm. But then having that history to be like, okay, you can um, we can think about this section from a certain perspective, mm -hmm. and then we can move on and we can think about this section. And I really like to think about the vineyard. Um, well, from different points of view, like certainly from um, our old vines, where like so much history and like the concentration of the fruit, um, and then you get to um, some of the newer vines, or like some of these new varietals that we planted that are untested for us, which are super exciting um, from a winemaking perspective. Um, but you get the sense that, um, yeah, you know, the story's not written. Mm -hmm. um, there's a long history, but we're still we're still got a lot to say. So, um, yeah, I think given that time that I've spent elsewhere has made me uh, a better winemaker here because I can take that former experience and lend it, like, if nothing else, like the confidence to make decisions in order to be effective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How would you describe your, your winemaking philosophy and, and maybe like what, what would be the ultimate takeaway someone would have from a bottle of your wine? Um, to hope that it was to be the storyteller, right? Um, I think in winemaking, <laughs> Katie from Shehalem's just walking past, laughing at me. She's been on the. She's been in okay. right, right where you've been. She knows. She knows. What, she knows what's going on. She um, knows. Great. Um, no, I like to 
tell the story without a lot of noise, right? So I want to tell the story of the vineyard and the vintage um, and showcase like these little nuances of the vineyard. Um, and I think I see that now more and more as my job. Mm -hmm. right? So um, as the storyteller and not um, kind of trying to manipulate anything. So every vintage is going to be different. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to play around with some stylistic preferences, but overall, like I think if you were to look at one of the reserve Pinot Noirs or Chardonnays, it's indicative of the vintage in the year. Um, mm -hmm. And I can reflect back on those. And it's like seeing an old friend sort of. And I was just at a dinner in Arizona and they had like a 2014 um, Chardonnay. And it's like, oh gosh, we've been sold out of that for a while. <laughs> Hello, old friend. <laughs> How are you? And it's so nice to think back. Or when I think about like 2016, um, and which is, we're still, you know, we're just now kind of selling out of. And when I revisit that wine, um, my God, that, that was, I, I mean, I just had a baby, and so I think back of like how hard that vintage was, and mm -hmm. it's like listening to a seashell, and I could kind of hear my son crying in it, and not in a bad way, but mm -hmm. it's reminiscent of that time and that place, and mm -hmm. that story of that vintage, and the fact that it was so early, and you know, it just kind of compounded everything. But again, like I, um, and for me, like telling, being able to like show what even each vintage brings is really important mm -hmm. and um so no if that's like a pinpoint style mm -hmm. or um but it's it's important to me so i think about that through using native comments or trying to um not be as heavy handed um or contrived mm -hmm. that is my goal mm -hmm. so i think if, if the story of the vintage is that fruit wants to stay in the tank longer then that's going to be what the story is in like 2019 that was the opposite story so you know you never know what's going to be um i think over time well yeah, like in this vintage in particular where it was pretty cool and um, more classic oregon i mean having the lens and the perspective of some of those cooler challenging vintages mm -hmm. um was really beneficial and then having the idea of um all going to be okay, right? We love to drink these wines. We love to have these wines um, and now, right? And like five, ten years later, those cooler vintages are often the wines that we reach for first mm -hmm. and with far more stories to tell. Um, so, yeah, I think it was in interesting this year that, you know, a lot of winemakers or young winemakers or young people to this industry hadn't experienced a true Oregon vintage. Hmm. Kind of brought it back around. And it was it was great, you know, to flex a different muscle and to think about wines in a different way. Hmm. Um, solve some challenges you hadn't had to solve in a while. Yeah, or to think about it in a different way, you know? Um, yeah, we, are, we were telling ourselves a story of like, um, you know, picking uh, for lower sugar and therefore lower alcohol or battling desiccation or, you know, all of these things that you tell yourself as like the new normal and to kind of have, you know, the pendulum swing back just a little bit and remind you that why we are here in Oregon is that most people 
who choose to make wine here are of the adventurous spirit and that it's not going to be the same mm-hmm. every harvest and that's what the cool part of it is. Um, and you can't just sit back and expect it to be one way. Even when you think, I mean right now I keep saying, oh it's going to be our early vintage and it's sure it might be. Mm-hmm. But um, who knows, right? Mm-hmm. We've got a long way to go mm-hmm. um, until we're actually picking grapes. Maybe in August, perhaps in September. But we've got a we've got you know a lot of months of potentially variable weather until we get to that point. So who knows what it's going to be like yet? So you worked between Archery Summit and Stowar. You've worked for some some pretty prestige name brands here in the valley. I'm, I'm curious if that adds pressure to your job. Do you feel like there's a certain standard you have to set? I think I always hold myself to a certain standard regardless, um, but I don't know, um, I don't know if, it, if that's the, if it's pressure. I think there's pressure to make sure that the wines are always great, um, and I think there is pressure to, um, yeah, make sure that I'm doing, you know, certainly this place justice, <laughs> I think there's a lot of trust that Bill Stoller puts on his team and um, and to live up to that trust. I think we are all feel really strongly about um, he's not a micromanager and he gets he's ex- I mean he loves this place. This is his home. And so um, yeah, just trying to make sure that um, the trust is warranted. Right. Like he allows us to do what we want within reason to make sure that we make the best possible wine. And so um, it's pretty fantastic to work for um, a company and a person that um, allows you that freedom to do so, because I don't feel like that happens very often. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, personally, I think uh, for me, I don't don't see the pressure being because I've worked at other places to perform a certain way, um, the pressure is to make sure that it carries through in like, the product that we're producing. Tell me about argument wine. <laughs> so, my husband and I started um, a little label called Argument. Actually, Nagy Brown um, started with um, the Naggies, and Chris Nagy used to work at Archie Summit in marketing. We started this in 2014 was our first vintage. Um, and it was just something that we wanted to do um, to have our own little label. Um, we had just had our first son and it seemed important to set a legacy for better for worse. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a project that we still do today and we have another little sparkling project called Dolores. Um, that is going to be released soon. Um, that is just something that we did to do. <laughs> I don't know if there's any. I mean, it's done with intention, but we don't make a lot of it, and we don't have a lot of time to sell it. So, um, yeah, it was something that we wanted to do for us and do like a couple hundred cases here and there and see. Um, but I think whenever you start a label, you realize that it takes so much effort to sell wine. Mm-hmm. And so it's um, it's a challenge. But it was great, you know, to work, certainly work with my husband in that capacity. 
um, for these tiny little things. Um, it's, it's nice. It's, um, I guess, not as much of a challenge as we thought it would be to actually physically work together. Um, I guess which does well for the future. And our marriage, so that's good. Um, but, yeah, so we just, it was one of those things where, like, this fruit was available, we should try it. And um, we started the sparkling project around the same time. But sparkling takes so much longer mm -hmm. to make. And um, when I first got into the wine industry, um, and, I, and probably my classmates will, uh, will tell you that I always said that I was going to make sparkling wine. And that was also one of the things that really drew me here, is that they were just thinking about starting a sparkling mm -hmm. program. Um, and maybe it was like the naivete of, um, like, I'm just going to make sparkling wine, and not really <laughs> knowing exactly how to do it or what to do. Um, and it was first in school, and now it's like, wow, it's a process, which I still love. I mean, it's one of my favorite things to still make and drink, for sure. Um, but yeah, when we started both projects, really, I was still working for um, the consultant. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, okay, we'll just do it. And so we could do it um, as part of my husband's um, like package for his work. We didn't have to pay for it, mm -hmm. uh, pay for facility charges. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like a good idea, and then we just we just do it. <laughs> Maybe in ten years from now, it will be something different. But right now, um, we're both heavily focused on um, where we're at, and what we're doing, um, and we just do it for fun to have something that's one hundred percent ours. Mm -hmm. so. And why the name? You know, <laughs> argument. When we first started thinking about it, um, it was like. Well, what, how do you sell a great wine? Is it like the vineyard or the land, or is it like marketing really does it? And that was really how it started with arguing. Um, and and it, I mean, it's stuck. It's been great. I think it sells from our website. So um, and it's you know, the vineyard does it from our organic winery down by um, Dallas area. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, it was just something that we were like, oh, the argument. We had this idea of like, this is the argument. And of course, as a lot of concepts are created, it, at least in my world, um, generally happens around a table much like this with a bunch of people drinking wine and you kind of go with it. So that's how that name. And then Dolores, the sparkling, um, my last name, Pain. Um, Dolores means Dolor means pain in Spanish. And when my mom um, lived in Spain, um, they couldn't pronounce her first name, which was Charlene, and um, they called her Dolores. And so it was one of those things. And my mom has since passed. And so it was one of those stories that you kind of recall. Like I, I think she probably told it to me in passing when I was younger. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we were thinking about this, I'm finally getting to a point where it was like, oh my gosh, we started the project like four and a half years ago, five years ago, and we're now at this point where we didn't want it to be the same thing. We wanted it to kind of have, not to her, but also um, it is Pinot Gouge, which is an esoteric varietal in the Willamette Valley, and a mutant of Pinot Noir. And it started up its own kind of project, its own little, um, 
thing where um, Drew Voigt and Andrew Bindi Smith and Chad Stock were splitting this acre of Pinot Gouge from the Zebo property, which is now owned by David Page and called RPG. And they said, we're splitting this acre. Would you be interested in taking part of this acre and um, doing a sparkling project and with your own label? And I was like, sure, just money. <laughs> Why not? And so we did, and we've just been kind of doing it. Um, so it will come out soon. It's only 100 cases. Again, they're micro projects. Um, but it's just something that we started to um, just to do and to have for our prosperity. Mm -hmm. It's nice of them to come to you with a fully fully formed model here. Here's the here's the grape you're going to take. Here's what you're gonna, here's what you're going to do with it. Yeah, isn't it so funny? <laughs> <laughs> so you get to these point. I know. It's like sure. I mean, again, I guess another capricious decision that worked out. But it was like, why not? I mean, that could be interesting. I think the idea was to that we'd all sell it like you know, collectively, uh, like support each other in mm -hmm. those entities of sale. But their wines being not a sparkling wine were ready so much sooner than the sparkling that they were probably already passed when we'd even do it. So, um, I mean, everything evolves and changes. So that's just how it started. Um, and who knows, like, who knows what will happen in the future. We just wanted, um, at that point, five years ago before we were in in certain roles in certain places we just started it we perpetuated it like a ton here a couple tons there um so yeah it's a cautionary tale <laughs> <laughs> starting your own project but i mean stoller has been super supportive i mean um yeah i mean i don't yeah it's just one of those things that i guess could still be considered a hobby mm -hmm. but <clears throat> we sell occasionally uh, you, you've talked about sparkling being the kind of the sort of the jewel and the crown of, of coming mm -hmm. of coming here and, and working and mm -hmm. something that appeals to you. What what about the process of, of making it is, is 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 appealing to you? What, what, why do you enjoy that part of it? It's um, it's hard to make sparkling wine and do it well. Um, you know, I don't know what it was. I mean, I think I'm not unlike a lot of people in that I like I've always liked to drink sparkling wine and champagne. So if you were to put me on a desert island, I'd probably say I'd take a handful of champagnes with me. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I, I, I think um, when I first started looking at it, I was like, gosh, you know, it takes a while. Um, the wine is so transparent, I can't have any flaws. And if it does, um, it will show through and mm -hmm. not, it's not gonna be as good. So there's a challenge in it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then to have this product that the road is so long to get to the end point, make it a traditional method, mm -hmm. sparkling wine. Um, we, I mean, it was just appealing in that. I mean, I think I lobbied. <laughs> I remember asking Anna, and, um, like, we should make sparkling at Archery Summit. And they were not really excited about keeping, you know, wines just sitting there for like three to four years, that's a lot of capital, right? Um, and I, which I totally get. Um, but it it seemed, and it's so funny when we started it here, we really started at Stoller 2013, kind of dipping the toe in, and then 2014 we started farming specifically for park sparkling. Um, and we really started making an intentional like move to make more 
high and sparkling mm -hmm. wine. And now to look back at that, that the ethos and the idea of like the um, the category of sparkling wine has become so so much broader here mm -hmm. in Oregon, and I'm so proud to be um, among. I mean, not as um, not my first like Roland or um, Tony Soder or um, you know some of the initials, but in that beginning next wave of like producers wanting to make quality sparkling wine, um, and I'm I'm really happy that that movement is starting to gain, gain traction, and people are seeing Oregon sparkling wines for um, quality into itself because we are in this fantastic space and place and time to be able to do it well. Mm -hmm. um, it's just continuing the conversation really as okay. You talked quite a bit earlier about uh, experiences as a woman in the industry and as a mother and, and the balance. And, uh, and you talked about the, the kind of the, the, the amount of symposia that are right now mm -hmm. about that specific topic. I know you were a part of the Assemblage Symposium mm -hmm. recently. Tell me a little bit about that experience, uh, its first year and, and your role in it and, and kind of what you saw from that going forward. I think it was incredibly well done. Um, I think when we saw this symposium kind of um, being formed and fleshed out. Like, I don't know that, um, I wasn't on the steering committee, I was just asked to be a part of a panel. Um, it was actually put together by Wynn peterson Edry, um, who's in our tasting group, and she asked four of us um, to be on the panel to talk about, um, they said lessons from the cellar, um, which I kept joking that I was like, oh, you know, how to properly coil a hose. Um, or things like that, um, but it was really, you know, more broad about, it was taken from like how do you have the work-life balance or um, as a woman in the, in um, a winemaking role um, and how, what are some of the other like issues, is there, you know, um, or some things like gender equality or like um, the discussion of um, equal pay and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to provide um, a panel for women specifically and production focused mm -hmm. where we could talk about, I don't know, questions that were generated in that scenario, in that sense and not just how to coil hose, um, which would have been made up for a really short discussion. Um, although it's a really important skill to have. Um, it was it was good. It was um, I think we often take for granted once you re reach a certain point in your career, like um, and if people still have like the same struggles that you did when you have her earlier on in your career. I mean, we all have things that we um, challenges mm -hmm. and certainly successes, but um, I think it was beneficial. And what was told to me after was that. And, you know some of the questions specifically about like having a family or how to how to navigate um, like glass ceilings or things like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and how my takeaway from it was that there's still we still need to have these conversations mm -hmm. um, and that we still need these forums to support each other and to um, I think there's a lot of I think it's getting better, but a lot of people didn't talk about these things. 
you know, more global or broader setting for the longest time. And so to have um, these conversations, like no holds bar, like, what did you do when you were nursing your child and doing this? Or random things like that, not random, I mean, super important, but things like that. Um, like kind of the nuts and bolts of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was great. And the whole two day um, symposium was phenomenal. I think they did an excellent job of um, not just talking about, you know, what women feel are um, like the issues. It was more of like bolstering each other and lifting everybody up. And that was what I, what my takeaway was a lot from. And we all make mistakes. We all have lessons to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. We all kind of turn a corner sometimes and then maybe wish they was a different corner. Um, but I think what women do well, what was interesting, they talked a lot about like, you know, the fight or flight um, application and how that paradigm was originally established from um, one subset of like men in like 1930 or something is now still something that people talk about to this day like oh it's your fight or flight, fight or flight reaction and um, they're like oh no no when studied with women women um, kind of tend and befriend and they gather their their village or their crew and they unite and then they then they go fight and so um, Yes, that is so true, right? It, the old um, adage that it does take a village is so important. And, and that was another thing that um, one of my recommendations, lean on your people. Mm -hmm. You can't do it all yourself um, as much as we want to. Uh, what, tell me about what you've seen uh, change in the industry since you've been a part of Oregon Wine and, and kind of where it stands now in, in 2020. When I first um, came back, you know, we were to Oregon, there was a lot of people, you know, talking about like our Burgundian ways, right? Like how we made wines in like the old world fashion or we were emulating different areas of the world in order to create the Pinot Noir from our estates and, um, and I just don't, we don't have to hold true to that anymore. I, what I've seen and what has been so wonderful is like this idea of brand Oregon, the idea of the identity of Oregon has really come into itself in the time that I've been here. Um, yeah, it, it's been it's been pretty remarkable. I remember we traveling, I remember when I first moved to Australia, people were like, Oregon, where's that? I'm like, oh, below Washington, above California. And they're like, oh. Okay. <laughs> there's, some, there's something there? Yeah, there's, there's, there's this space that exists there. We make Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and some other varietals. And so, um, and certainly, I mean, going to Burgundy and, you know, you'd hear, I mean, when I first started going there, a few producers were like, oh, I think I've heard of, you know, Dundee Hills or Lemon Valley. But the good majority, I wouldn't admit that they had at that point. Um, and now it's like, Oregon's on the map. And um, now the French are coming here, right? And so it's been such an interesting time in that 12 years, 10 years. Things have changed a lot. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's certainly more wineries. Um, there's there's the same amount of collaboration, I would say, in conversation, which is great. Um, 
but with the influx of um, more people and more wineries, the, there's a broader um, pool of ideas, really, which is great. And so um, as things continue to get warmer and um, you know the climate becomes more variable, we're going to have to become more creative um, and think about things from a different standpoint. And I think what is so wonderful about Oregon is that we are always constantly learning and not just leaning on heritage or legacy. Mm -hmm. And um, I had said before that it draws out an adventurous spirit. And it really does because, mm -hmm. yeah, it's going to continue to change. <laughs> We're going to continue to change. Mm -hmm. What do you see as you look ahead? What's it, what's it going to look like in twenty thirty? Maybe what do you hope, and maybe what do you fear is going to, is going to happen here? Um, gosh, it's like a time capsule. Exactly. It's exactly. Um, it's exactly what I this know. is. I know. I wish I knew for sure. That would be beneficial. Um, you know, I think there's still going to be expansion. Um, as I see it right now, I think Oregon's going to continue. It's going to be drier in the summer and then wetter um, in the winters and the fall. So I think we're going to have to get creative, um, or not creative, but think about farming from a different standpoint. Mm -hmm. I think we're often asked, it's like, oh, are we going to have to plant Cabernet? And I don't, I don't foresee that. I, um, I think maybe some other varietals might kind of come into play, but I don't think Pinot will be obsolete at mm -hmm. all here. Um, I like to think that we all, um, gosh, I hope that we all start getting along. <laughs> I, mean, I hope in 10 years there's world peace and flying cars, but um, I don't know. It feels weird that we're in 2020, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I don't know what the, what the future holds, but um, I hope that we get to a point where um, we can manage what, what the onslaught of um, climate change is going to present. And um, I envision that we'll still be farming. Um, and Bill Stoller here, he makes companies that last 200 years, that's his goal. And so um, really just setting it up for the future and thinking about being stewards of the land and hopefully still making wines that are reflective of that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, personally, I mean, in 10 years, probably start, almost start, not quite, start getting my kids ready for college, so that'll be interesting. Um, but yeah, there's a lot on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm a pretty optimistic person, mm -hmm. so I'd like to think that, um, hopefully we're just in a turbulent moment in time, um, and that will come through it with, you know, some lessons learned and um, I still have faith in uh, humanity that we'll figure it out. Um, but that's, that's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I can't give you anything, anything concrete, mm -hmm. otherwise I'd be in a different field. <laughs> but I think that we will, um, people are, are pretty resilient and so people feel strongly about what they're doing and I, I envision that it's not going to change that much. We're just going to have to um, be mindful about how we farm and the practices that we 
uh, employee. And um, yeah, and the funny thing is, about 10 years it goes by quickly. It does. You can attest to that. So it seems, yeah, it, it, it's funny because I came back in 2007 and that truly seems like yesterday, but a lot has happened. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It will be interesting to reflect on this <laughs> in 10 years mm -hmm. um, and see where we're at. But, for you personally, are there any any goals you have set for yourself? Anything you'd like to achieve? Uh, anything you haven't tried yet that you want to try? Oh, um, skydiving. No, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, there's lots of things. There's lots of personal goals. And I wish I was better about setting goals too um, for the future. Um, I think as we go forward, I mean, I would love to you know, get to a point where there's like a subset of wines that you're like, oh gosh, you know, they already, I said that they already tell a story, but like my goals for the future are always like, well, um, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't even know what my goal is. I can't even say, like I think that, you know, once you reach a certain point in your career, like, oh, okay, why make of this? Like, I just want to continue to do the best job that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. um, best job that I can do. I don't know if there's one specific thing. Um, I'd like to make sure I mean, the wines are still well received. And who knows um, where I'll be in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Possibly this is a great spot. I'll still be here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there seems to be a, um, a lot of longevity in um, the team here. So I don't know. But yeah, right now, I think for this moment, like looking forward in five, ten years, like I just want to keep making the best possible wines that we can make. It's a noble goal. Simple. I assume you get this question quite a bit uh, from people uh, who are interested in getting into the industry. I want your advice. What, what kind of words of wisdom do you have for someone who wanted to get into Oregon wine right now? Um, apply for an internship. Um, and really see if it's something that you want to do. Um, we often get the question of like, oh, do I need experience? And it's helpful, um, but we, we, for here at Solar, we hire such a um, big team during harvest that a couple people here and there that don't have any experience, um, we can manage. Mm -hmm. And so if it's something that you really think you're interested in, um, get some experience before you kind of dive in because harvest may not be for everybody. Um, it's a lot of uh, cleaning things. It's a lot of cleaning. Um, and that's what it takes essentially in the beginning parts of it. Um, and I think what I always try and impress people, like if you have like a science degree, you don't have to fit. And I think times, I mean, I'm sure Sound like an old person. Times are changing. Um, I think kids, times, kids these days. <laughs> kids these days. Um, but they are. I think the idea of success is so different than when I was growing up, and the idea of like if you were in a successful field, like a lawyer or um, medicine or something like that. This idea of what these successful fields are, and I think what we've seen now, I mean, certainly with social media, and certainly with I mean chefs are now famous, right? Like, there's idea of, like, and, you know, 
certain fields. Like it's so funny. Um, but yeah, that the idea for success, the metric for success is so um, broad. Mm -hmm. You can do whatever you want. So be impatient and hold if you have a science aptitude. Um, look outside the box. Think about it. Um, and get to know as many people as possible. Network. And never say no to an opportunity, right? Um, you never know where it's going to lead you. And um, just one little fork in the road can, or on a Harley ride or something like that can lead you into a completely different career path than mm -hmm. what you envisioned for yourself. So, yeah. Make a capricious decision every once in a while. Every once in a while. I'm not always that person, but <laughs> it seemed to have worked out. <laughs> I went with it. So last question for you. Mm -hmm. What's what is wine's role in society? What is wine's role in society? What, oh, what is wine's role in society? Um, in my local society, it's a, it's all encompassing, right? And um, it is it is for every emotion, every sort of celebration. It is, um, it's integral, like I said before, it becomes a part of who you are. And so um, down to, you know, something that um, kind of helps you, I don't know, reflect on certain things and be a catalyst for ideas. Um, I think mine is, something that's so cultural too in that it becomes this this beverage that like you have with a meal or you have after a hard day or after a good day after um, so many different moments that um, I don't know I feel lucky to be able to create something that can be so impactful for so many people mm -hmm. and um, and through that expression of like this raw material that is what we farm and what we come to know from our land down to like this moment in a bottle that is um, for me I mean who's in it can be profound and thoughtful and um, thought-provoking and um, yeah there's there's so many elements to wine and I think it's not you know we're in this weird moment again in time where um, the wine industry is changing uh, because of other beverages or other um, things that are coming into um, the market share, so to speak, mm -hmm. and White Claw being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, not that I don't occasionally like a good White Claw, um, full disclosure, but I don't, for me, it doesn't have the same, um, the same visceral experience of like sitting around and enjoying a phenomenal meal and thinking back like you don't look back and be like oh that white cloth in 2019 was incredible um it was you know that wine that we had for that dinner oh my god that like you know 2000 like so and so or whatever that bordeaux that burgundy and it really informs a sense of time and that storytelling uh, and i think that's what so compelling about wine um, because it lends itself to an experience in a moment um, and that's what 
keep draws people back to it who are I mean who are in it right like we're in it <laughs> so and not and people who are collectors so people who just like to drink wine it, they it, often like I said you going back to an old friend or thinking about a moment mm -hmm. and a lot a lot of times it's like oh we had that great dinner and it's this wine that I remember the most or you have your unicorn wines that you remember and you don't find that with necessarily at least I don't like with like a sparkling water or a beer or something like that. It's been super specific to wine. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what keeps us going. <laughs> That's what keeps me going. All the questions that I have for mm -hmm. you today, is there mm -hmm. anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? I don't think so. Maybe we didn't cover it? We should have covered I feel like we're comprehensive. Okay. Excellent. Well, that was a pretty great way to end it then. That's an a fantastic answer. So uh, thank you so much My for your pleasure. time, for your stories, uh, for sharing your perspective with us, and we will let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.